Good afternoon, everyone. My name is Rebecca Parker. I serve as president and professor of theology at Star King School for the Ministry, our Unitarian Universalist and multi-religious theological school in Berkeley, California. And this is the Star King President's Lecture. Be stopped in your tracks by beauty. Take off your shoes and let your bare feet sink deeply into the holy ground of earth. Connected to the sacred, hear God crying. I feel the oppression of my people. I hear their voices rise up in la lucha, in the struggle. Join them. Tell Pharaoh, let my people go. The story of Moses' encounter with the burning bush, told in Exodus chapter 3, provides a framework for social action, grounded in a spiritual experience of the sacred. The framework has three parts. One, an epiphany. Two, a lamentation. Three, a call to action. One, an epiphany. Moses' epiphany is an encounter with an unexpected and miraculous beauty in the desert. He sees a bush luminous with fire but not consumed. This epiphany stops Moses in his tracks and makes him turn aside from the course he was on. It changes his life. Two, a lamentation. Moses takes off his shoes in reverence before the astonishing beauty he has encountered. And then he hears a divine cry of deep anguish for earth's suffering peoples. God is weeping for the oppressed. God's heart is aching for people exploited by economic injustice and forced into desperate choices to survive. Three, a call to action. Moses hears the voice of God calling him to redirect his life in order to counter oppressions and build just and sustainable communities. Moses was an unlikely candidate for such a call. He had been raised in the elite privilege of Pharaoh's household. For years, he lived in the closet, passing as an Egyptian and hiding his true ethnic identity as a Hebrew. But he broke under the pressure. He lashed out violently when he saw one of his people being beaten by a harsh taskmaster, and he killed him. Now Moses was in the desert where he had fled in guilt and fear. God calls him out of isolation, out of guilt and fear and shame, into community engagement, shared 
and shared struggle. God tells Moses to use his power and privilege to tell Pharaoh to let the oppressed Hebrews go. And after some persuading and promise of help from others, as well as the divine, Moses takes action. The militarized border patrols pursue him and his people. But they make it across the wilderness. They find miraculous water in the desert and they forge a new community. This afternoon, I will take each of these movements, epiphany, lamentation, and action, and unfold them to make three points with a few subpoints along the way to guide us in our calling as progressive people of faith now. The three points are, first, we must ground our activism in a spiritual experience of Earth's goodness, life's beauties. We must begin with an epiphany of paradise. Two, we must open our hearts to grief. We must hear and feel the legacies of injustice within us around and around us. And especially, we must recognize and repudiate the travesties of religious systems and cultural patterns that have sanctified injustice. Three, we must act. We must claim the power of the spirit, the power of communion and connection, and the power of creativity as counter-oppressive powers that can sustain us in la lucha and by incarnating an alternative way of life, bring healing and liberation and a reorientation to paradise here and now. So, to unfold this first point, we must ground our activism in a spiritual orientation to Earth's beauties, life's goodness. Paradise is a name for Earth's creative fullness, its life-giving waters and protective encompassing atmosphere, and its myriad plants and creatures. Paradise is a name for the interconnected and interactive sacred wholeness that generates and sustains multiple, diverse, life-giving ecosystems and human cultures. Paradise also names that interpenetrating realm, spiritual and material, in which the ancestors rest in close proximity to us, visiting us in dreams and rituals to hold us accountable and to guide our path. Ephraim of Syria, my, fourth, my favorite fourth-century Eastern Christian scholar, poet, and social justice activist, spoke of paradise in all these ways. Ephraim's community lived in the contested borderlands between the Roman and the Persian empires. Violence haunted his community's daily life. 
searching for a way to escape the war which had destroyed their crops and burned their homes, Ephraim and his people became refugees. They migrated across the desert and in exile, Ephraim ministered to the sick and wrote a thousand lines of poetry in praise of paradise. Here is one of his poems. The breath that wafts from paradise gives sweetness to the bitterness of this region. It tempers the curse on this earth of ours. That garden is the life breath of this diseased world. Desertification, the human process of making deserts through unwise, destructive life ways, through war, economic exploitation, and ecological abuse, puts paradise at risk. But even then, the gifts of paradise reach us and minister to us. We need to ground our activism, first of all, in our receptivity to these abiding gifts of life, to the joy and refreshment present in this world, the fiestas of color when brilliant flowers bloom in the desert in the spring, the pleasures of friendship and of loving connection with one another, the exuberant energy of the creative arts, dance and drumming and poetry slams. We need the revolutionary joy that takes us to the streets in yellow t-shirts, that keeps itself renewed annually with outrageous transgressive you-all-come parades like gay pride, revolution through creative play in the streets. We need the quiet joys of ordinary family and church life, potlucks, and choir rehearsals, and water communions, and flower communions, and candles of joy and concern. Don't underestimate the power of these simple things to renew our souls and to open us here and now to the gifts of this present paradise, the feast spread before us, meant to be a welcome table for all. When we are awake to beauty, like Moses before the luminous bush in the desert, we become more sensitized, more able to hear, see, feel, and be awake to all that happens in our world that contradicts and defaces this beauty. Our ethical consciousness rises from our spiritual openness to the astonishing, the marvelous, the good, the true, and the beautiful. Thus grounded, we can hear and respond to the realities of suffering and brokenness and injustice around us and within us from a deep place of divine awareness, of, a deep place of awareness of divine presence, miracle, and grace. Point two, we must lament. 
My heart is moved by all I cannot save. So much has been destroyed. Adrian Rich. Did someone say there would be an end? An end, oh, an end to love and mourning? May Sarton. Would that my eyes were fountains of tears, that I might weep day and night for the wounds of my people, for the wounds of my people are my heart wounded. Jeremiah. Joanna Macy teaches that when we allow ourselves to grieve and feel despair, we receive the empowerment we need to move into activism for the long haul. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be empowered. Theologically, I advocate for lamentation precisely because religion often silences or distorts grief or exiles us from its revelatory importance by explaining its religious meaning in ways that deny the force of its reality. There is a long history to religious pieties of denial. At the foot of the cross, facing the torture and humiliation of Jesus, many Christians have been taught to give thanks for Christ's suffering. Transforming pain into gratitude in an unholy alliance that blesses an event that was state-sanctioned terrorism and says it was the will of God and a pathway to salvation. Turning violation, crucifixion, into a cause for rejoicing is a profound theological error that entered into Christian history with force beginning in the ninth century. That is when Charlemagne, in his imperial ambitions to conquer and unite Europe for the first time in Christian history, used violence to force the indigenous tribal peoples of Northern Europe to be baptized into Roman Christianity. This was part of Charlemagne's strategy to subdue a rebellious people and force them to annex their lands to his empire. Charlemagne's court theologians assisted in this imperial agenda by redefining Christian communion, changing it from a joyful feast in paradise hosted by the living Christ into a reenactment of the killing of Jesus as a sacrifice to free sinners from being burned in hell by God. I recount this history briefly. You can read it in great detail with 100 pages of footnotes. In the book that Rita, Brock, Rita Nakashima Brock and I have written, and some of you have read and studied, thank you, called Saving Paradise, How Christianity Traded Love of This World for Crucifixion and Empire, published by Beacon Press.
But remembering and grieving this history, this history that silences grief and distorts the meaning of violence, is something we must do now to understand one of the action items before us at this very General Assembly. The request brought to us by our partners that we repudiate the doctrine of discovery. In its second thousand years, Western Christianity turned away from a spiritual awareness of paradise present here and now, luminous in the natural world, and available to all of us through mutual care, nonviolence, and a just and equitable sharing of life's gifts. Beginning with Charlemagne's imperial strategies, Western Christians lost spiritual awareness of this earth as the good gift of God. And they lost awareness of themselves as bearers of the image of God. Instead, Christians began to embrace violence as the pathway to fill the void of their own spiritual emptiness. As they sought an increasingly distant paradise that was lost, which had been relegated to either the beginning or the end of time, or to a realm reachable only after death, or possibly to some distant land that might be found through pilgrimage, conquest, and colonization. As they sought this increasingly distant paradise, their strategies themselves wreaked havoc on paradise here and now. This turn set Western European Christians on a path that would culminate in the 11th century emergence of holy war. Crusaders, imitating the God they worshipped, offered themselves to kill like God the Father or be killed like God the Son, and the Spirit kept those two, Father and Son, connected. Under the banner of the crucified, Christians massacred Jews, Eastern Christians, and Muslims. The rise of crucifixion-centered theologies and the search for a paradise no longer at hand evolved, erupted into two dominant patterns that are with us still, crusading and colonizing. Crusading seeks to convert all others into the dominant and dominating culture or destroy those who will not assimilate. Colonizing seeks to capture, hold, and wall into national borders the lands the empire wishes to control and the resources it wishes to own. In 1455, when Pope Nicholas V issued the papal bull Romanus Pontifex, which is one of the founding documents for what has come to be called the Doctrine of Discovery, the Pope authorized Prince Henry the Navigator to launch a crusade. It was a standard crusade um, authorization, this papal bull. This crusade was authorized to the west coast of Africa, the Pope commissioned Henry, who he called a true soldier of Christ, 
to attack the Muslim enemies of, quote, the life-giving cross residing in remote and undiscovered places, and, quote, to invade, search out, capture, vanquish, and subdue these enemies of Christ, and to reduce their persons to perpetual slavery, and appropriate their kingdoms, possessions, and goods to his use and profit, unquote. Within two decades, the Portuguese had established ports along the coast of Africa that would be used for the next 400 years for the slave trade. The Atlantic slave trade thus began as a crusade against African Muslims who were captured and taken back to Portugal and were paraded through the streets as living symbols of the crucified Christ. The arrival of the captured Africans in Portugal was ritually, was ritually um, paraded in the streets on the same pattern as the Stations of the Cross observances during Holy Week. In public spectacles, the suffering and humiliation of captured Africans was praised as like unto the sufferings and humiliation of Christ. And those who praised the suffering Africans thanked them for bringing about the salvation of those who subjugated them. That this salvation process would turn out to be helpful for making a profit for the crowns of Europe and the coloners trying to reclaim paradise was a handy side benefit. This is what we must not only repudiate, but grieve. Abandonment of the spiritual awareness of paradise here and now and the embrace of theologies of redemptive violence has created a cultural habit, a framework of meaning that is in the cultural DNA of our society now. This cultural DNA valorizes terror, humiliation, and crucifixion as means of salvation, as methods to create secure communities. And to this day, this valorization of terror, humiliation, and violence has been used in Supreme Court decisions to justify the subjugation of indigenous peoples, the military, and happening now, the militarization of borders and the criminalization of migrants and the rising forms of unfettered racism in our society. It is not simply the doctrine of discovery, but the full framework of crucifixion-centered theologies that justifies the dominant and dominating culture we and so many others are struggling to resist. A culture that is not only around us, but within us. 
This culture embodies a lost spiritual awareness of this world as paradise. A lost connection with the green shade of verdant gardens, the intricate ecological web of life's interconnectivity, and the original ever-present dignity of humanity created in the image of God. Two centuries ago, Hosea Ballou made this observation. The devil will have religion and will have it as long as he can. We must weep for these thousand years of travesty supported by religion. But we must do more than disassociate ourselves from Catholic doctrine, from decrees of popes. We must go further and deeper theologically. We also must analyze and recognize that our own faith tradition has roots in crusading and colonizing. Our Puritan forebears had their own versions of colonizing violence. They burned native villages, one Puritan observing the smoke and describing it as, quote, a sweet sacrifice to God. Believing that the killing of non-Christians served God's will, Puritans imagined New England to be the lost garden of paradise, which God intended for them to inhabit as the new Adams and Eves, and from which the serpent embodied in the savage Indians had to be exorcised at worst, killed, or at best, converted. The Puritans used their theology of covenanted communities to create segregated enclosed spaces for praying Indians. The reservation system in America began just as the apartheid system did in South Africa with the assistance of the framework frameworks of Calvinist covenantal theology. We can repudiate Catholic doctrines of conquest, but not without critically engaging also the theological frameworks in our own Protestant Puritan roots that have promoted a polity of enclosure that binds the elects together in one boundaried space in which the elect evolve to become citizens of the nation, while the non-elect, the second class, the not fully pure or redeemed or converted, the indigenous peoples, those labeled pagans, those defaced for their nakedness and their wildness, are set aside into other contained spaces called reservations, where they are to be assimilated, converted, and controlled. Critically examining our own theological roots is important, not to engender guilt or raise shame, but to increase responsibility. We need to recognize 
the vestiges of life-constraining theological frameworks in our own UU culture, theologies, practices, and policies. Facing into the sorrow of some of our own history can release us through lamentation to greater freedom to be faithful to our deepest desires and commitments. Which brings us to point three, action. Among our Unitarian and Universalist theological forebearers are those who have made a bold critique of redemptive violence and from that critique have taken bold action for social justice. In his book, Identifying the Image of God, Dan McCannon analyzes the emergence of 19th century social reform movements as products in part of the profound discomfort and guilt descendants of New England Puritans felt about the atrocities committed by their forebearers in the name of Christianity, especially the genocide of Native Americans, their forced migration on the Trail of Tears, and the enslavement of African peoples. The emergent Unitarians and Universalists of the 19th century offered important theological alternatives which fueled their social activism. Hosea Ballou, for example, rejected violent doctrines of the atonement that valorized Christ's suffering as appeasement of an angry God. He argued instead that salvation would come through the attractiveness of Christ's beauty, the lure of his character, moving people to a reorientation of their senses and their desires towards that which is truly beautiful and good. Ballou rejected, as we know, the dualism of heaven and hell as afterlife destinations. And he repudiated the cruelty of imagining that God would condemn anyone to everlasting torment for more than a few moments (laughs) for needed purgation, but no everlasting torment. He noted that those who imagine a God so cruel have no difficulty becoming even more cruel than the God they worship. The transcendentalists called people to commit civil disobedience in protest of unjust laws and acted with courage to advocate for the end of slavery, and they turned their spiritual attention to the presence of inebriating, renewing beauties. And while even the transcendentalists, I have commented in other places, have to be critically examined, there are wonderful resources in the moves that they made theologically, spiritually, and in terms of social action. In this refulgent summer, it has been a luxury to draw the breath of life. The grass grows. The buds burst. The meadow is spotted with fire and gold in the tint of flowers. The air is full of birds, 
and sweet with the breath of the pine, the balm of Gilead and the new hay. Unquote. So spoke Emerson as the opening words of his revolutionary divinity school address, in which he calls for beauty to rekindle the fires on the altars of religion. Our religious heritage stands on holy ground. In the mixture of wheat and tares, there are life-giving resources in our heritage, which offers us theological perspectives that bless and affirm the goodness of this world, that reject violence as a means to bring about justice, and that teach us to decolonize occupied territories by creating an alternative presence, one that incarnates the grace, justice, compassion, the holiness, the happiness of holiness, as Baloo said, and the goodness that belongs to all of us. A final reflection to conclude. Elaine Scarry, in her essay on beauty, writes, quote, Beauty is life-saving. Augustine described it as a plank amid the waves of the sea. Beauty quickens. It adrenalizes. It makes the heart beat faster. It makes life more vivid, animated, living, worth living. She concludes, it comes to us with no work of our own and then, pre then leaves us prepared to undergo a giant labor, unquote. The labor of love for this earth and for one another is the giant labor to which we are impelled by our knowledge of beauty, our love for life. This labor of love for the earth and one another requires us to go whatever distance is necessary to serve the creation with responsible devotion and wise care and to defend one another against dehumanizing acts of prejudice and injustice. Recently, I watched documentary footage taken by current Star King student Susie Spangenberg. Susie filmed Unitarian Universalists in Arizona two summers ago who answered the call to gather in Arizona to protest the implementation of SB 1070. Susie's footage shows how our people, people of faith and conscience, would not stay on the sidelines when children as young as six are being in detained, when sheriff's deputies are taking the law into their own hands and conducting illegal raids, when families are being broken up in roundups, and when people with economic interests in the privatization of prisons and ties to white supremacist groups are behind the legislative efforts being duplicated in states all across this nation that aim to imprison undocumented workers and turn them into slave labor. Katrina Sinclair, a UU from Tucson, Arizona, 
was among those who, along with our president, Peter Morales, and perhaps some of you who are here now, she was among those who were jailed for protesting. While detained, Katrina was in a cell close to a group of undocumented Latina women who were likely scheduled to be deported back to Mexico or sent to prison. The night in jail was long. The detainees had no water. The air conditioning was turned down to 50 degrees. There were no blankets, no place to lie down except on the cement floor. The lights were kept on all the time. Guards banged the steel doors to keep everyone awake. Across the distance between the cells, Katerina and others in their yellow standing on the side of love t-shirts found ways to communicate their support to the detainees. There was one Latina woman in particular that Katrina connected with. She wanted this woman to know that though she was imprisoned, she was not invisible, not forgotten, that she had allies who respected her humanity and that she was not alone. So in an effort to communicate, Katrina gestured across the cell. I see you. The woman nodded. I love you, Katrina continued. The woman's eyes filled with tears. Si se puede, Katrina mouthed. Cesar Chavez motto, yes, we can. The woman mouthed the words back to her. Si se puede, si se puede. When morning came, the standing on the side of love protesters were released. Katrina describes how relieved they were to be free of the traumatizing prison conditions, but their hearts were torn by the knowledge that the undocumented immigrants had little chance of release. As Katrina was led away from the cell, she turned to keep eye contact with the woman still jailed. And the Latina woman she connected with the night before pressed her face to the glass, following Katrina with her eyes. As the distance between the two women grew, the imprisoned woman gestured to Katrina. I see you. I love you. Si se pueda. And Katrina mouthed the words back. Si se pueda. Si se pueda. They mouthed the words together. Yes, we can. Be stopped in your tracks by beauty. Take off your shoes and let your bare feet sink 
deeply into the holy ground of earth, connected to the sacred, hear God crying, I feel the oppression of my people, I hear their voices rise up in la lucha, in the struggle. Join them. Tell Pharaoh, let my people go. The spiritual reality of our connectedness empowers us with its beauty and grace. We are here as Unitarian Universalists to witness and to work for another way, another world we know is possible, not only because we dream about it, but because we have tasted and felt its presence. Let us act for justice and peace because we know these longed-for goods to be a reality already at hand in the midst of us, in acts of compassion, in moments of connection, in fiesta and siesta, blessing our eyes with beauties, comforting our bodies with joys, reminding us that en la lucha, in the struggle, we are on holy ground.